Hey, how we doing? Grab your Bibles, turn to the book of Revelation. It's the last book in your Bible, and we're going to be in the second to last chapter, Revelation 21. Um, a couple weeks ago, I started just a two-week series. I've preached it at Grand Haven. I'm finishing it here, and it was called Beginnings and Endings, looking at two books, Genesis and Revelation. And the argument that I was making is that if we um, take our eyes off the foundation, being Genesis, or if we take our eyes off our hope, which is the book of Revelation, what gets lost in the middle is the gospel. And when I was speaking on Genesis a couple of weeks ago, I made the point that many of the fundamental kind of core foundational doctrines that we believe come from the first seven chapters of Genesis. Things like God is a creator, that he created the world, that we we're created in his image, which gives value and sanctity to life, that he created us male and female, that um, he designed marriage, that we can read in Genesis 3 about original sin and the fall and why the world that we find ourselves in is often so difficult and so broken. And then Genesis 5, 6, and 7, that God judges sin. And that he's already judged the world one time. And we looked at some verses that week from 2 Peter 3, which basically said that in the last days, scoffers or mockers will come with their mocking saying, where is the sign of his coming? For ever since the world began, things have continued as they have from the beginning of creation. And then it says, when they say this, it escapes their notice that the world was created by the word of God and it has been destroyed once by water and it is being reserved to be destroyed once again by fire. That's a paraphrase. But in those verses, it says that Genesis and Revelation will be under attack as we get near the return of Christ. And one of my concerns would be that as a church, we don't think about heaven very often. And I think there's a couple reasons for that. One is um, when a preacher says, oh, I'm going to open uh, your Bibles to the book of Revelation, that's going to be controversial. Because there's all different kinds of opinions on the return of Christ, and there's pre-trib and post-trib and amil and pre-wrath. And as you start to go through and talk about the return of Christ, man, people get pretty defensive. They get pretty contentious. And rather than be divisive, I think a lot of guys just stay out of Revelation. We haven't spent a ton of time in this book because I think it can be controversial. And then the other reason why I think you stay away from the book of Revelation is heaven is somewhat indescribable. And as you get into the book of Revelation, there's all this um, language that is kind of this imagery. And even as John is trying to describe what heaven is like, chapter 4 says that he was transported. He's actually in heaven, and he's telling us, and it's like this, it's like this, it's like this, but it's somewhat indescribable. Some of you know, some of you who have come in the last few years, you might not be aware of this, but we've planted two churches in Kenya and uh, one of those churches is just outside of Nairobi. It's in Lamuru. It's about an hour outside of Nairobi. It's pastored by a man by the name of James Amwamba. He has been here at our church on a couple different occasions. The other church that we planted is in uh, Busia, Kenya, which is remote. And uh, it is over off the Kenyan-Ugandan border. And in both cases, we've actually, our church has paid to have two physical churches built. We support these pastors on a monthly basis. We continue to mentor them. But the guy that pastors in Busia, anybody here been to Busia? Yeah, I didn't think there were a lot of you. I think I'm the only one in the room that's been to Busia. But um, that guy, he's never been to the United States up until about three, four years ago when we had the opportunity to bring him here for a week. And um, James Onwab is the guy wearing the normal shirt. Uh, Andrew McKenzie from Busia, he's wearing a shirt that I could like never rock. I could never get away with that. But he looks a little bit like uh, 
Dwayne Johnson, the rock. And so like he can rock anything. He looks good in anything. So that's how they were dressed today. We were showing them around Chicago. And that picture is actually taken from the Shedd Aquarium. And we're looking at the cities in the backdrop. It was a beautiful day. But it was interesting. As we took them through the Shedd Aquarium, I'm watching Andrew McKenzie look at the exhibits. And... Um, I don't think he's ever thought about what's going on under the surface of the ocean before. But you take him to an exhibit, there's a coral reef, there's all kinds of different um, corals and beautiful, colorful fish, and he's looking at it going, I don't know how to tell my wife about what I'm seeing. Like, she's never going to understand. I'll never be able to explain this to my kids. And then he... um, a little bit later, we took him to one of the taller buildings in the city. We're kind of overlooking the entire uh, city. And he says to me there, he goes, um, if this is Chicago, what's heaven like? And I'm thinking to myself, very few people get Chicago confused with heaven. But I kind of understand from like your perspective how, how you might feel that way. Because he's never seen anything like this. Heaven's indescribable. And because we're maybe cautious to go study on heaven or maybe because it's indescribable. Quite honestly, we don't know a lot about heaven in this room. Some of you, if you were to take a trip this summer to um, Aruba or to San Antonio, wherever y'all go, you would spend more time looking online about the 10 best things to do in this place or the best restaurants or the best places to stay. You've probably spent more time planning a week vacation than you have understanding what eternity is going to be like in heaven. And just to prove it, I'm going to do a little true-false test. So I need everybody to go like this. Hold your hand out. 11 o'clock, participate, okay? I know you're a little, little groggy, but just like this, all right? True-false. True is up, false is down, Okay. Ready, true, false. When we get to heaven, we're going to sit on clouds and play harps. False. That's a really lame mental image of what heaven is like, okay? Try it again. True or false? Hands up. Okay. True or false? In heaven, there's pearly gates. True. Later in this chapter, Genesis 20, or I mean Revelation 21, you can read about the pearly gates. And I know some of you are like, well, that's talking about the new Jerusalem. It's not technically heaven. And I would just say to you, don't be that guy, okay? True, false. Keep going. Hands out. Uh, There will be hunting in heaven. False, okay? (laughs) You're not smashing Bambi in heaven. It's just not happening, okay? Okay, hands out. True, false. There will be golf in heaven. True. (laughs) Come on, that's a silly question. It's obvious, all right? Um, True, false. Let's keep going. There will be dentists in heaven. True. (laughs) Okay, try this again. I'll, I'll try to point this out. There will be preachers in heaven. True or false? False. Okay, here's the deal. There will not be dentistry in heaven. There will be dentists, okay? One of my elders is a dentist. I've got to be careful, all right? Randy Moeller, okay? Dentist Moeller, that's the real thing, okay? Um, preachers will be there, but I promise you we won't be preaching. What in the world would I have to say? You can see Jesus face to face, right? So I'll be standing next to the dentist in whatever heaven's equivalent of the unemployment line is. That's where you'll find me. One more, true or False. You really can't know if you're going to heaven until you get there. 
false. We want to make sure we're right on that this morning. So this morning, uh, my job isn't difficult. I'm just kind of a tour guide. I'm going to walk you through a brochure. It's Revelation 21 verses 1 through 6 on what heaven is like. Because my fear would be that sometimes we forget to look up and all we're doing is looking around and that can get discouraging for a follower of Jesus Christ. Heaven is actually called, heaven in the return of Christ in Titus is called the blessed hope of the church. So we want to make sure we understand what heaven is like. The big idea this morning is simply this, without knowing where you're going, it's hard to get there. A couple things about heaven under the broad Banner of the destination is awesome. Let me show you four reasons why I believe heaven will be awesome. Four words. First one is in the first few verses, Revelation 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. Verse 2, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And then jumping down to verse 5, and he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Okay, in those verses, what word do you see three times? New. Heaven will be new. The first thing you need to know about heaven is it is new. I love the imagery at the end of verse 2. It'll be new. It's coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. As a pastor at this church, I've done many weddings. The last wedding that I did was in um, June. It was on Father's Day. It was an outdoor wedding in Nunica. kid by the name of John Vandermate was um, getting married, and uh, I was officiating that wedding. It was fun because I've known John probably since he was eight, nine years old. He was in my wife's kids' praise um, group at another church. So I've known John for a long time. We prayed that kid would find a wife for a long time, okay? And uh, so I'm doing the wedding. I'm standing next to John, and his bride starts to come down uh, the main aisle, and uh, she's made her own dress from scratch. She, like, flew to New York and got the fabric. She's got, like, 100 hours into this thing. And, and I'm kind of looking because everybody else is watching the bride. Everybody stands there watching her. I'm always watching the, the groom. I want to see if he can hold it together. Um, I walked my daughter, Catherine, down the aisle. And uh, that's difficult if you're a dad. Like, I was trying to hold it together in that moment, and my daughter's like, you pull yourself together. She's threatening me. And um, <laughs> we're standing in the back of the church, and I begin to walk her down the aisle, and uh, I'm looking ahead, and my son-in-law to be Austin with that goofy smile. And... Um, like, I was married 38 years ago. It wasn't a real big ceremony. I can tell you what my wife was wearing. I remember the dress. That, that's just a moment, um, husbands, that you'll never forget. If you're sitting by your wife, maybe like a squeeze of the hand would be a really smart move right now. Okay, just kind of helping you guys. Um, I remember in this room, I walked my daughter, Nico, down the aisle. And uh, she was beautiful. She was in her dress. And um, it was a little bit weird because I knew I had to hold it together with Nico because I walked her down the aisle. Calvin, my son, was up here. He said, who gives this woman to be married? And I said, her mother and I. And I um, kissed Nico goodbye. And I glared at Tony, her husband-to-be. And then I had to switch places. I had to jump up here. And so I was standing here. And Nico was here. And Tony was here. And uh, I started to do the ceremony. I was like, okay, I held this together. I'm doing pretty good. And then all of a sudden, I looked over at Tony, and um, his bottom lip began to quiver. And uh, his eyes were filling with tears. And um, 
his cheeks were getting all rosy. And I'm like, dude, knock it off. Like, <laughs> like I wasn't expecting you to lose it. I was worried about me. If you lose it, there's no way I'm going to be able to hold it together. But, but heaven is described as new. It's that moment. Okay? It's that wow moment. Anybody here like new things? I like new things. I like last night after church, I went over with my brother-in-law. We went to a restaurant we hadn't been at before. I like trying new things. Um, right behind that wall during the service, there's, uh, that's the place. It's called the green room. It's where the um, uh, worship team hangs out in between services. And they're here last night and at the 9 and at the 11. So they're hanging out back there. And because they're younger, we've got this refrigerator in the green room that's filled with drinks I would never drink. There's not a Coke Zero in the room. It's, it's all hipster drinks. It's um, LaCroix and um, sparkling waters and Perrier's. And so each service, I've been trying a new drink from the fridge just to see what it's like. And I found this in there. It's called um, Aha. Anybody, you guys had this? Okay. I've never had it, but it's new. So I'm excited. I'll try something new, right? Aha, that tastes, um, that tastes a whole lot like LaCroix. I'm not going to lie. And um, what I would tell you is this will not be in heaven, okay? You will not be drinking LaCroix or Aha in heaven. You're not going to drink things that have just a hint of flavor but promise so much more and leave you like, is that it? That's not what heaven is like. Everything in heaven is fresh. Everything in heaven is new. I got a new car at the beginning of last month. I'd waited eight months for it to arrive. It came in. I drove it for 10 days. I hit a deer. Okay? It's in the repair shop now. In several months, I'm going to get it back, and I'm going to hope that it's like new. Okay? Heaven is always new. And I tease. I'm not talking about things in heaven. Think about it this way. In heaven, everything's new. There's no broken relationships. There's no strained friendships. There's no regret from the prior day's choices. There's no having to deal with yesterday's problems. There's no wishing that you could change people's perceptions of you. Everything's new. Heaven never gets stale. Everything will always be fresh. That's almost impossible for us to imagine. It's like if we do the same thing for three weeks, it's like, okay, give us a, something to break up the routine. In heaven, everything is always fresh. You will never desire to go on vacation to break the routine when you're in heaven. You will never be bored. Heaven is fresh. It is new all the time. It is like a husband or a groom watching his bride come down the aisle. You will never lose your sense of awe in heaven. And though that's hard for us to relate to or hard for us to imagine, it's what Jesus says. I think we can take his word for it, don't you? Okay, here's the second thing. Look at verse 4. It says that he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Not only will everything be new, but you will be comforted. You will be comforted. In 1 Thessalonians, or I'm sorry, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul is writing a church in Thessalonica that is enduring incredible persecution because they stand for the gospel. 
He's written them a first letter. This is his second letter. By the time this letter gets to the church, they are under such extreme persecution. People are dying in the church because of the gospel. They're fearful that they've missed the return of Jesus Christ and they're experiencing the wrath of God. That gives you a sense of how bad things are. And Paul takes a moment to reassure them and he starts to talk about what's going to happen when Jesus Christ returns. And he says this in 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 6. He says, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. So he says when Jesus comes back, he's doing two things. He's granting relief to his followers. And those words grant relief, they actually mean this. They mean the removal of pain, the absence of anxiety, the end of distress. When Jesus returns, when we get to heaven, we will be comforted. That verse in Revelation 21 where it says, he will wipe every tear from your eyes. That's not the only place that's stated. It says in Revelation 7, verse 16, they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Hey, just a little pointer. If you get to heaven and you see somebody crying, don't ask them what's wrong. That's a real rookie mistake, okay? If somebody's crying in heaven, it'll be tears of wonder, tears of joy. There's no tears in heaven. I found this interesting. Scientists have been able to prove that each one of us, this is amazing, each one of us during the course of our lifetime will cry the exact same number of tears. Did you know that? So if you're some tough guy, you're like, I never cried. You're probably a really wimpy kid because we all cry the exact number of tears. Is that amazing? I made that up. That's not true. Okay? That would be crazy. And like, who would count all the tears? How would they even be able to do that? Okay? But here's what I want you to see. In this world, every one of us, because of sin, because of the brokenness of this world, every one of us suffers heartache. We suffer loss. We go through difficult seasons. And the thing that I want you to know is simply this. God sees it. God knows. Psalm 56, verse 8. The psalmist says it's this way. Speaking of God, he says, You have kept count of my tossings. You put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? God knows when you're troubled. God knows when you're tossing and turning, when you can't sleep. God knows when you're in a difficult season. The psalmist uses the imagery. Listen, he keeps track of your tears. And in heaven, he promises that he will wipe those tears away from your eyes and you will be comforted. In heaven, there will be no more heartache, no broken dreams, no difficult goodbyes, no life-changing phone calls, no worrying about your kids, no regrets, no betrayals, no pain, no shin splints, no artificial knees, no surgeries, no illnesses, no doctors, no hospitals, no diets. I can't prove that one. It's just got to be true, right? No diets in heaven. No, No aging, no decline. No anticipation of the end, no funeral homes, no sudden loss. 
God's promised, Revelation 7 and Revelation 21, that he will wipe away every one of your tears, and he will, because God keeps his promises. Here's the third one, verse 6, Revelation 21. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of, water, spring of the water of life without payment. Again, similar language in Revelation twenty-two seventeen. It says, the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. So twice what he's saying is, come, I'm willing to give living water. And it's harder for me to read those verses without being reminded of the prophet Isaiah's words in Isaiah 55. There the prophet declares, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. And then he asks this question in verse 2. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. It's interesting. When the prophet penned those words, and those are the words of the Lord that he's pending, there is an invitation into something that will satisfy us and the question is being asked, why do you spend your money for that which doesn't satisfy? But here's what I want you to know. When Isaiah penned those words, he wasn't talking about heaven. He wasn't talking about something in the future. He was talking to, about what's available to us here and now. We are already part of the kingdom of God. But the issue is, in this life, we're just too easily distracted. We're easily misled. We make foolish choices. We begin to believe that other things will satisfy us. We believe that more of some of the same things that we already have that haven't satisfied us till now, if we just get a little bit more money, if we just get a little bit more fame, a little bit more power, a little bit more promotion, we believe those things that haven't satisfied in the past, if we just had more, will satisfy us now. In heaven... Everything is settled. Here, we fool ourselves. We believe that we can make this place heaven on earth, but it'll never be the case. It never satisfies. I don't know what you think of when you think about your favorite place to go or your favorite thing to do or what's the closest glimpse of heaven you get on this side of eternity. For me, it's pretty easy. I've talked about this before, but it's this little place in Alaska. It's called the Confluence. Two rivers come together and you fish right at the point where the two rivers combine and um, God willing, I'm going to be there in like two and a half weeks. And I'm going this time with my brother Keith and um, he's never been to Alaska so I'm pretty excited to be able to take him with. I'm going with another friend, Brett. We've gone on this trip a couple times but here's what I know. We're going to get there to that perfect place 50 miles from the closest human. I love it. And um, we're going to start to fish. And even though I'm there in my favorite place doing my favorite thing, guess what? I'm going to have things on my mind like I, I hope my brother catches fish. I hope the plane that's supposed to pick us up can get in tomorrow. I hope it's not too windy or raining. I um, hope I catch fish. 
I hope my brother's having a good time. I hope Brett's having a good time. I hope my waiters don't spring a leak. Like, I'm still thinking about things. I'm still wondering. Last time I was there, I fished 45 minutes. Three other people in our crew, they're all catching fish after fish after fish. I'm not catching a thing. In my favorite place in the world, I'm frustrated. Why is everybody else catching fish? I'm not catching fish. Apparently, you should check your lure to make sure the hook doesn't break. Didn't know that, okay? (laughs) Even when you get on earth to the closest that you can recreate heaven, it will fall far short. How long will it last? Will anything disrupt it? In heaven, there is completion. It is done. Everything you will want will be in heaven. Everything, I would say it this way, heaven will not lack one thing that you desire. When you get to heaven, your joy will be complete. And how can I say that with confidence? Because when you get to heaven, Jesus will be there. And the psalmist says that in his presence is the fullness of joy. So here's the last little word I would use to describe heaven. When you get to heaven, you'll be home. Look at verse 3 of Revelation 21. I skipped it the first time I read it. It says this, and it says, and I heard, it, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Interesting, those words, loud voice, that's the 20th time that's used just in the book of Revelation. And when we see those words, a loud voice, what the author is saying is, hey, pay attention. I'm about to say something that I don't want you to miss. There's something significant about to happen. He said, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. In Revelation 22, 4, we read this. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light or of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. See, what makes heaven heaven is the presence of the Lord. He's moved into the neighborhood. God is with us. Alec, as he was leading worship, he said, hey, I sense the presence of the Lord in this place. Sometimes we get glimpses here, right? Thinking back over my time with this church, there's been moments where I really sense the presence of the Lord. There's a picture where It's from a Christmas Eve service a couple years ago, and um, the people were holding candles, and the end of the service, they were singing, O Holy Night and Silent Night, and um, I was actually creeping up on the catwalk. I do that sometimes, just kind of looking down at the worship and listening to the people sing, and um, Sometimes you just sense the presence of the Lord in this place. The the other picture is actually in this room. It's from a vertical men's night where this place is filled with men just worshiping on a Sunday night. And um, there's been nights I've sensed the presence of the Lord in this room. I've also sensed the presence of the Lord in this room when nobody's here. And maybe I'm just early at work or I, I, I wander into this space and as I look around the room, it's quiet. And I remember, I remember um, that under all of this carpeting, there's verses written all up and down the aisles, all over the stage, the promises of the Lord that his word will never return void, that his promises can be trusted. I think you get glimpses of the presence of the Lord in our lifetime. When you get to heaven, 
He's in the neighborhood. He lives with us. God is with us. What's it going to be like to look Jesus in the face and talk to him? Anybody looking forward to that? Like, I love the Gospels, but there's some things, like, I just wish they would have told us. I wish there were some things that I understood. Like, there isn't a lot of information from the time Jesus is born until he reaches adulthood. Like, what's it like to be the son of God? Like, how does that affect your relationship with your siblings? I would think that would create some issues, don't you? What's it like to hang out with friends as you're growing up? Hey, did... Did you have a junior high crush on a girl? What's it like to work for your dad? What's it like to go through your entire life knowing that it ends with you hanging a, on a cross, dying a thief's death? Like, what's that like to carry around with you? There's just some things I'd like to understand, I'd like to know. And I'm going to be able to ask him face to face. No rush, you can go first. We got all eternity. It's all right. I've got some questions, not just about his life, but mine. Like, like you promised to work all things for your glory and our good, but there's some pieces of the puzzle that I'm just missing. I don't understand what you were doing here. And, and why this? And maybe just having that moment where he says, well, let me explain to you everything that I was doing in the background and how I was using this and how I was using this. And there were things that I was accomplishing that you couldn't have believed. You would have never known. And it was awesome. And I was in control of the whole thing. Like, man, I look forward to that. Jesus in the neighborhood, God with us. It's going to be awesome. The destination is awesome. Here's another thing that I want you to see, though. The destination is awesome. The journey is difficult. Now, I love the confluence, but just let me explain. The journey to get there, I fly out of Grand Rapids to... Minneapolis, I have a layover. I go from Minneapolis to Anchorage. I spend the night in a hotel. I get up the next morning early. I take a plane. I use that term loosely, a tin can that flies from Anchorage to Dillingham, Alaska. That's another two-hour flight. I get to Dillingham. I take a 45-minute ride in a van to the edge of a lake. I get in a boat. I drive for 30 minutes on the lake. I get to the lodge. When I get to the lodge, I jump in a float plane. I fly for an hour in a float plane. We land in a river and... I get into a fishing boat and we go 15 minutes and I'm at the confluence. Heaven's difficult. The journey is difficult. Let me give you three points. The road is narrow. Matthew 7, 13 says, Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter it are many. Verse 14, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. The contrast here is not, it's not so important wide versus narrow. It's easy versus difficult. It's that many will be on a path that leads to destruction. Few will find the way that leads to life. The road is narrow. Here's the second thing. The tide is against us. The tide is against us. I think it's an amazing thing that when you study the New Testament, so much attention is given and so much explanation is given to churches 2,000 years ago about what it's going to be like, what our culture is going to be like before the return of Christ. Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, he says this, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty 
For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Pretty good descriptions of what the culture is going to look like before the return of Christ. Man, I'm so glad we don't have to live in a culture like that, aren't you? Were you not in Grand Haven last night? <laughs> I live in downtown Grand Haven. My neighbor is the beer tent during Coast Guard week. I, I, I'm just telling you, that's a pretty good descriptor of our culture. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're swimming against the tide. Proof of this comes from Romans 12. In Romans 12:1, Paul urges us, as followers of Jesus Christ, to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice in light of God's mercy, in light of his grace, offer yourself as a living sacrifice to God, which is your reasonable service. It is your act of worship, depending on which translation you read. Because of everything that Christ has done for us, we're going to follow him regardless of the tide. And then in verse 2 of Revelation 12, he says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In essence, what he's saying is, as a follower of Jesus Christ, don't go with the world. Many are going to be following the stream, headed in a different direction. As a follower of Jesus Christ, the tide is against us. And then here's the third thing. The opposition is real. In Matthew's gospel, in the 24th chapter, Jesus is in the last few days of his life. The triumphal entry has already happened. He is in Jerusalem. He's starting to get into some confrontation with the religious leaders, the scribes and Pharisees of his day. They are already plotting on how they can put him to death. And in Matthew 24, his disciples pull Jesus away privately and they say, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? Like, when are you putting all of this sin stuff to death? When are you coming back to conquer? And in Matthew 24, 9, it says this. Jesus is describing what it'll be like right before his return. It says, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you will be hated by all nations. Well, why? For my name's sake. Verse 10, and then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And I think in those two verses, I understand the tribulation part. I understand that there's going to be a cost to follow Jesus. I think the most disturbing phrase is, and many will fall away. Because many isn't a couple. Many's different than a few. It says many will fall away. So when things get difficult, many will leave the faith. Well, he goes on and gives further explanation of what specifically will cause them to leave the faith. In Matthew 24, 11, it says this, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. What leads people away before the return of Christ? False teaching and lawlessness. Hey, question for you. Why do you think every week, doesn't even matter who's preaching, it could be any one of the pastors here, why do you think every week we go turn in your Bibles too? Why do you think we open God's word, we go to a text, 
and we're diligent to pull our points from that text. We do that because we understand before the return of Christ, there's going to be many false teachers, and we don't want to be one of them. We want to open God's word. We want to tell you what it says. We want you to read it for yourself. And here's why. Because we don't want you to be led astray. Because the warning is that many will be led astray before the return of Christ. I know many of you have been frustrated that over the last year and a half that we have tended to pound this nail of saying, we're going to submit to authority until we no longer can. Why do we do that? Because there's a warning that before the return of Christ, lawlessness will cause many to go astray. That attitude that says, nobody gets to tell me what to do. I will not submit. These are the things that are going to be used by the enemy. And the warning's sober. It says many will be led astray. Jesus, in describing what it'll be like in the last days before his return, is telling us, get ready for hardship, get ready for betrayal. And then in Matthew 24, 13, he says this, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. The one who endures till the end will be saved. That word endurance means to um, remain. It's not about how far you can run, it's how long you can stand. In other passages, you would see that word or the similar language say, stand firm as a follower of Jesus Christ. And here's what I don't want you to miss. Following a description, verses 1 through 6 in Revelation 21, about how awesome the destination is, how awesome heaven is going to be. Look what it says in verse 7 of Revelation 21. This promise The one who conquers will have this heritage. That's everything that's just been promised about heaven. And I will be his God and he will be my son. Again, that word conquer is referring to finishing what you've started. It has the idea of not defeating the enemy, but finishing the race. And then in verse 8, it says this, but has for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, As for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. I find it very interesting that in the middle of a brochure about how great heaven's going to be, Jesus has John penned this warning, this question, are you a conqueror or a coward? See, verse 8 tells you that not everyone gets into heaven. And I'm not surprised by some of the things that I see on the list. It doesn't surprise me that idolaters or sorcerers are not going to be in heaven. The word that concerns me in that list is the first list, cowardly. Because that's the warning, that's the contrast throughout Scripture when it talks about those who will be in heaven and those who will not, will, will not be there. Heaven is exclusive. It's not exclusive based off the color of your skin, how much money you have in the bank. It is not exclusive based off your talents, your abilities, or what you have and haven't accomplished. But heaven is exclusive. And the call goes out throughout the book of Revelation. The one who endures to the end will be saved. The one who endures to the end will be saved. In Revelation 2 
chapter 2 and chapter 3, seven letters are written to seven churches. Some of those churches are good churches. Some of them are fallen churches. Some of them are lukewarm. And to every one of those seven churches, check it out for yourself. To the one who conquers, 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 there is given the promise of heaven. The call in the midst of a culture that is going off off kilter, is going in an opposite direction as the follower of Jesus Christ. Hold your ground. Stand firm. Don't miss it. Be sure. Heaven is prepared for prepared people. And my question would be, are you prepared? And let me be really clear on this. It's nothing that you can do. It's nothing that you can do to earn God's favor. Being prepared for eternity means you've come to a place in your life where you realize that you need a Savior. You're tired of yourself. You're tired of your own sin. You call out to Jesus Christ who paid the price for our sin, who bore God's wrath in our place, and you say, I need you. I will only rest in what you accomplished on the cross. I'm willing to follow you. Are you prepared? Don't find yourself in the thought I was prepared line. It's not a great plan. The question goes out as we look at heaven. Are you cowardly or are you a conqueror? And by the way, don't miss this. It's not that those who overcome earn the way, their way into heaven. Those who are called by Jesus Christ, who've been saved by Jesus Christ, will overcome. We don't even get the credit. Philippians 1.16 says, He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it in the day of Christ Jesus. It's the promise, it's the work that God's doing that will cause us to overcome. Jesus is about to be betrayed And in some of his final instruction to his disciples, he says this. I go to prepare a place for you. Let not your heart be troubled. That's John 14. Because he understands that his followers of Jesus Christ in the difficulty, if all we do is look around and we never look up, it's easy to get discouraged, right? And I just encourage you with this as we close. I believe we find ourselves living in unusual days. Matthew 24, verse 37, again, in response to the disciples' question, when are you coming back? He says, we read this, for as were the days of Noah, so will the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. The issue there isn't that they were eating and drinking, that they were marrying and giving in marriage. The issue there is they were absolutely unprepared for the judgment that was to come. The world's going to be caught off guard again. And my fear would be as followers of Jesus Christ, sometimes we're focused too much on what's going on around us and we forget to look up and remember the glory that's been promised to us. That the afflictions today are light and momentary compared to the glory that's going to be revealed to us. Hey, newsflash, culture's not going to get better. We're not going to 
If culture is a sinking ship, the call of the church is not to rescue the vessel. It's to man the life rafts. It's to rescue those with the gospel that are willing to be rescued. That's our call. That's our job. So, how do we endure? How do we conquer? I'm really glad Paul answers that question. He closes out his letter in 2 Timothy to his friend Timothy this way. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Then look what he says. As for you, be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of the evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Stand firm, church. Be courageous. Look up. Jesus has conquered. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. And um, even a glimpse of heaven should make us cry out, Lord, come quickly. And Father, I would pray for those of us here in this room that uh, you would light a fire in our hearts and an anticipation for everything that you've promised. Father, I know that you have promised that you'll never leave us or forsake us. But in these days, I long for the day that I can see you face to face. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for forgiving us. Thank you for giving us a hope and an inheritance. Lord, teach us to remember what you've promised us about heaven. It's in your name we pray. Amen.